0: Hello, and welcome to the first Michael Sebastian podcast. I am your host, Michael Sebastian. The purpose of this podcast is to bring back traditional masculinity. And for our first podcast today, we have a very special guest, and that is Ivan Throne, the Dark Triad Man. He blogs at darktriadman.com. Ivan is also a published author. He was published by Castalia House, and his book is entitled The Nine Laws. I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast. And so, without further introduction, here's my interview with Ivan Throne.
1: Oh, it's good to see you, Michael. Thank you
0: for having me on the podcast. I want to dive right into the discussion here. You had a tweet yesterday where you talked about the idea of making people dependent on certain things and by making them dependent we're in essence weakening those people I wanted you to kind of elaborate on on what you meant and kind of what your view of where we are right now today and
1: what the immediate future looks like for us so so the tweet in question I was speaking about how if you wish to make something extinct or at least have the choice in the future of whether to force extinction on something, first you make it dependent. This is true of relationships. This is true of business competitors. This is true of military forces. This is true of culture. And in context, the tweet was about artificial intelligence. However, think about what that means. What do we do with cattle? Think of the population of cattle, how dependent they are on us. Could they survive if humans disappeared? Perhaps. Think of genetically modified organisms where we take things to the point that without direct human intervention to perpetuate it, it dies after the first crop. And if you're going to harvest something, whether it's profits, whether it's flesh, whether it's crops, whether it's culture, Forcing and infecting that dependence in your target is a necessary part of it. And it's important to keep an eye on those things and think, how am I being shepherded or herded into dependency? Very important for man to understand in the current year.
0: So do you think that there is some sort of plot or conspiracy of a group of people that deliberately does this? Or is this just a function of economics and politics and just the way things play
1: out? Well, there's two answers to that. Uh, The first is whether is there an overarching conspiracy or the Rothschild and the Bilderberg group combining together in some sort of sinister plot well, yes and no. There are always cabals, there are always groups, there are always alliances behind the scenes. However, this is also how things work. So to extrapolate malevolence from what is normal is not necessary. you think about where society goes, where humanity goes, how the progression of culture and politics and war, the trajectory and momentum that they have, This process of forcing dependency, of infecting a population is simply how it works. This is how the dark world works. It is what it is. You don't need to look for the sinister in order to understand, appreciate, and benefit from your understanding of what's essentially mundane. Yeah, I think of the Roman Empire
0: where they had bread and circuses. And the bread and circuses, these were things that the emperor would do for the populace. He would provide free bread. He would provide entertainment in the form of the Colosseum, the gladiator matches. And all of this was meant to pacify the people so that they wouldn't rebel. And I also think of the things that we have in, in the modern Western states, we have these welfare States, especially in Europe, you have free college, you have free healthcare, et cetera. You have these things, and it's a great pacifying thing on the populace. It's good because there's some benefits, but there's also the idea where it makes makes us, I guess, slaves to to the government, or maybe not slaves, maybe more beholden to the government. So it sounds like that's what you're what you're talking about, and not
1: it, when you say the natural course of events, right? Absolutely. And if you think about how addicted people are to smart technology today, uh, how easy is it to distract people? Now, I love Donald Trump's tweets. I think they're fantastic. But think about what happens. Suts down, sends out a tweet, and then all of a sudden the entire world is focused and distracted on something trivial and immediate and small and takes the the awareness of people away from things that are going on. Um, this is a normal process. Uh, people need to understand that. What's different today is the amount of information that's available to us, the sheer fire hose of data that comes our way. And that's been very cleverly combined. Uh, this was called out by a former Facebook executive. It's been designed to engage the endocrine system of human beings and provide that instantaneous, almost addictive reward. Uh, This was something the Romans were not able to do. Uh, So understand that normal things can be inflated, normal things can be accelerated. And if you're on that trajectory, if you're a part of that momentum and you're not aware of it, you end up within a co
0: So we really are in a unique situation because this is the first time when I when I was a kid all this stuff the social media this instantaneous gratification video games the widespread availability of pornography which is really addictive this stuff wasn't available when I was a kid so we're we're definitely living in a different era and then I also see some things that give me pause now, I know there's a lot of concern so We have uh, very high immigration rates. There's a lot of identity politics going on across the spectrum. There's uh, a lot of polarization between left and right. Where do you think things are going? Uh, actually, I'll ask you about Europe and I'll ask you about the United States or two pretty different sectors, but I kind of ask you where you think things are going or what's the immediate future look like?
1: Well, the first thing to understand is that things happen in cycles. There are patterns, there are rhythms, more importantly. It's, an, it's not enough to simply say, oh, those will cycle. People move from peace to war and back to peace. We move from economic plenty to hardship and then back to plenty. We all know that. But what is the actual rhythm of it? Is that rhythm speeding up? Is that rhythm becoming deranged? And one of the things that people don't like to do is recognize when things are headed in a very painful, bloody, and and destructive direction. So where the United States is concerned, we certainly do have that intense polarization. We have that immense frustration, the overwhelming sense of antagonism between the right and the left. Is that going to increase? Absolutely. Will we see violence in the United States? To an extent, we've seen it before. Uh, the current Antifa groups and the anarchist affiliation that they have, a hundred years ago, they were sending scores and scores of dynamite bombs across the United States to public officials. It's happened before. Will we see it again? My answer would, would be in the form of a question. Has human nature changed? Does tower work? Yes, it does. The rise of the Islamic State was proof of that. Now, where Europe is concerned, it's a very different situation. For all of their efforts at creating a United States of Europe, that's not going to work. And we're seeing that fragmentation. We're seeing the pressure, especially coming from Eastern Europe, where countries like Poland and Hungary and Romania have drawn the line on mass migration from the Middle East, shutting the doors, putting up fences, and defying the European Union. They see what's happening. They have seen it happen in their own lands. And make no mistake that there is a definite and very absolutist growth of resistance to this globalist agenda. Now, I want to be very clear when I say globalist agenda. Again, I'm not talking about conspiracies. Conspiracies are not necessary for human history to play out and they have far less impact than people believe. Human nature is what it is. We're fallen animals. We do the things we do. So do I see war in Europe coming? Perhaps. I don't think it will look like most people believe it will look. We're not going to see Germany invading Poland. We may see people rising and expelling the migrants using military force on a fourth-generation level rather than as state actors.
0: For the United States, would you see the same thing where you wouldn't necessarily see something like the North versus the South as it was in the first Civil War, but more of loose groups engaging in fourth-generation warfare?
1: I do. I think that the United States is in an unusual historical position. The animosity that the left and the right have is ideological rather than geographical. So no, I don't see a civil war such as we've had before. I don't think that's a probable situation. However, will we see things like improvised explosive devices? Will we see targeted assassinations? I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. It's starting to reach into the realm of probability. One of the things for some of your listeners may be aware that I head up an organization called the Safe Streets Project, where we monitor and we track Antifa and other militants on the left. And one of the more concerning developments we've seen is with the fall of the Islamic State. There are fighters that were embedded with some of the Syrian resistance groups, the Peshmerga and other groups, uh, that were very specifically sent there by their Antifa groups from Greece, from another state, from other countries. They've picked up military skills. They've picked up military experience. They know how to kill. They have killed. They don't mind killing. They're not disturbed by killing. They have the skills to place bombs, use incendiaries, shoot people. They're coming back. Their ideology has not changed. So that is a concerning development that we're monitoring right now. That is very disconcerting. And I I
0: wasn't aware that that was happening. So these Antifa groups are definitely serious. This is not a flash in the pan or a minor diversion. These are organized, it sounds like well-funded groups, and they they definitely have big plans.
1: The most important funding that any group has is adherence to their ideology and the determination to pursue it. People can make do without money. The groups that are associated with Antifa, and we have a whole coalition of them, uh, are very determined. They are absolute in their ideology. And one thing I did not mention, but worth keeping in mind, is that they have begun reaching out and working with Islamic groups within the United States Now, these foreign fighters, so to speak, that are returning back to Greece, back to the United States, back to the United Kingdom. Think about where they've been. The people fighting on the ground against the Islamic State are Muslim. So these fighters have been embedded in Muslim culture. They speak the language. They understand the culture. They understand the customs. They understand Islam. They've built relationships Not just online friendships, but men fighting in the trenches with each other, bleeding together. When they come home, they look just like us. They know our society. They know our culture. They blend in perfectly. And they have instant, blood-built credibility with Islamic groups here in the United States. They can provide training without being observed. They blend in. They can build those relationships without doubt that killed with each other. So we will see, I believe, a gradual increase of that link between the left and Islam in the United States, and especially the left and Islam in Europe, as things heat up on the ground with that fourth-generation conflict, as I mentioned. The left, not just the left, but the right, the process or the gradient, the people move from activists Protesters, they move from protesters to militants, from militants to insurgents. This is a continuum. This is part of what Clausewitz described as war being the continuation of politics by other means. This is simply, again, how it works. Do we see that happening? We don't. Is it concerning? Absolutely. Can it be derailed? Only to an extent. Sometimes it needs to play out, and sometimes it's a very difficult answer. As the people who need to die for it to stop. When Donald Trump took
0: office, one of the things that he said that he wanted to be a unifier, and I, I believe the man. I take him at his word when he when he said that. I I know a lot of the things that he does are divisive, but I think his overall goal is is to unify. Do you think that he will be successful in being able to unify Americans? given that we're so polarized between different groups, left and right, and head some of this off? Or do you think he, he's merely restraining the inevitable?
1: I think a couple of things are taking place with Donald Trump. Uh, first off, and this is very important, as we head toward war, internecine insurgent war across the United States and Europe, but as we head more into a deeply ideological conflict between the left and the right, think of what Donald Trump has already unified. The right is no longer on the defense. It's now on the offense. The right is no longer fragmented the way it used to be. And those on the right, as my publisher Box Day has called "conservatives," are being sidelined. They are no longer considered leaders. They have bankrupted their credibility. So his unification is taking place, but it does not happen on a broad scale at first. You have to start with the things that are willing to unify. And that's what Donald Trump is doing. Keep in mind that he has eight years to do this. My sense of Donald Trump, can he avoid the war? Can he avoid kinetic solutions? Can he avoid the tumult that's coming? No. But with Donald Trump in office, there is now an opportunity to win it, which has not been present before.
0: Now, given the fact that we might be entering an unstable phase, what do you recommend that men should be doing today to prepare for this uncertain future?
1: The most important thing is to understand the anti-fragility where attacks where assaults where insult, where damage where death do not degrade your capabilities but inflate your morale inflate your capabilities grow your competence that anti-fragility is is crucial men need to build the the desire and the pursuit of anti-fragility into everything they do you need to build this into your family. You need to build this into your life. You need to build this into your financial situation. Because the tumult and the chaos that's coming, you don't want to be destroyed by it. The other part of that, and also inherent and blended in with it, is the crucial component of real-life relationships. One of the dangers of our digital world today is that separation of human beings. We interface as screen names. Men do not die for screen men. They die for brothers that they know in person. You need to build those brotherhoods. You need to connect with men on the ground, face to face, share trials together, live your lives in parallel. If you do not have allies, you will be left alone. Loners die and armies win. Always keep that in mind
0: this this is so true and and one of the reasons that I felt I needed to start this podcast was to to help men build this anti fragility into their lives and I think what you said about connecting with like-minded men on the ground especially locally but it doesn't hurt to have the network across the u s uh, across across continents etc it it's so key and I don't Think that a lot of men fully understand how grave the situation is and how necessary these networks, uh, these brotherhoods, the brotherhood is going to to be in the future. When you say anti-fragility, give us some examples of what you're thinking about.
1: Certainly. So I think Twitter is probably the simplest and the quickest way to describe this kind of reaction. So as you've seen, my Twitter following has grown immensely over the last two years since I began Dark Dried Man. Certainly, I've come to the notice of people who do not like me, who do not like my message, who perhaps even loathe me in what I stand for. How am I going to respond to the hate mail, the hateful tweets, the attacks? And the answer is just first, stop caring. Nobody else cares. Two, let it be a spur to the point now where when I receive nasty hate mail, I publish it and I gain more followers, I gain more influence and more reach. The important thing to understand about leading men, about reaching the hearts of the crowd, we have to do two things. Number one, we need to say the things that people believe but are afraid to say. And we need to say the things that they believe but don't know how to articulate. And you can do those two things, attacks upon you, demonstrate what it is they see. So that's an example of anti-fragility. Take it to the other extreme and look at hedge funds. Right, those are based on the idea of no matter what the market does, they're going to grow because they've hedged everything. Anti-fragility is crucial
0: there was actually a, a tweet uh, from or maybe an article from somebody in silicon valley very wealthy investor and he mentioned that he was in beijing and he felt that he was he had more freedom to discuss things in beijing than he had in san francisco and this is uh not some far right wing zealot this is some ordinary left-wing liberal person who is very wealthy so not threatened from a financial perspective but still feels that in the US he has to curb what he says and and make sure his opinions don't go against the grain or go against political correctness if somebody like that is not able to speak freely what chance does an ordinary person who's making you know middle class wage what chances does that person have to become anti-fragile?
1: Very little. And that's a harsh answer, but that's the truth. One of the problems that we've seen in the United States, and this is not limited to the United States, but it's part of, again, how politics and culture work, is that conservatives, those who seek to conserve, tend not to be the ones on the offense. This is not a left-right this is those who seek to preserve are inherently on a defensive standpoint they adhere to rules the left does not if you look at the history of just the last hundred years especially in Europe over 100 million people have been murdered by the left they do not care what you believe they do not care what is right or wrong. They're a very pure kind of adversary. And again, when you consider the politics and war are simply places on the same gradient, the same continuum. Is it any wonder that the left is willing to shoot people, herd them into death camps, starve them, and then topple them naked and gunshot into a nameless pit in some dark forest? That is how they operate. It's very simple. Give them free reign, and that is what they will do again. It's very difficult for people to get their heads around this sometimes. Um, One of the places that I see this is in speaking to some of the conservative university groups. And when Milo Yarnopoulos came to Boulder, Colorado, uh, almost a year ago, I thought I'll meet with the folks that were hosting him. Very good people, very bright, uh, very eager, lots of energy. And their initial thought was, you know, we can set up some tables and we can have a dialogue with people and we can talk to them and contrast and talk about our different ideas and find common ground. And I had to stop them and say, stop. That's not going to happen. They are not interested in dialogue. You don't need tables. You need riot police. Now, they listened, and they ended up with SWAT teams from five different departments, people arrested, things being burned. The left does not do dialogue any more than Islam does dialogue. Submit or be killed. That is how the left works. They do not seek to live in peace. They seek power. This is normal. This is not outrageous. This is simply how it works in the dark world. And men need to understand that and take appropriate steps to see, to learn, observe where things are headed, and who's doing it.
0: I agree wholeheartedly. I had a tweet earlier today where I said, if you enter a mixed martial arts match, but you, out of a false sense of chivalry, decide to adhere to the Marquess of Queensbury boxing rules, you're going to lose. And that's what I see so many conservatives out there. These are men of goodwill, but they they enter this fight in this political arena and they're, they're playing with one hand or maybe both hands tied behind their back out of the sense of being nice guys. And these rules don't apply. They're losing and they just continue to lose, but they they feel good about it because they're maintaining some principle, but I'm not sure whether these principles are, are worth maintaining. Given, given that we're entering this difficult phase, do you recommend that ordinary men take up martial arts or learn to shoot, for instance? Do you think it's, it's that time or do you think it's, that that's a, just a nice to have?
1: Well, there's a couple of ways to approach that question. The first is that in this world, everyone, every single person, is solely responsible for their own survival. That is how it works. If you wish to love, you need to learn to pay attention. If you wish to survive being physically attacked, you need to develop the skills. Now, where martial arts are concerned, a couple of thoughts there that may be useful to the listeners here, understand the two components of that expression, martial arts. And I'm speaking as someone with over 30 years of background in the classical Japanese disciplines. Martial is war. That's what it means. War is what? Killing. The purpose of developing skill in martial disciplines is to not be killed. To not die right there, right now. It is not about artistry. Art is kind of a mistranslation. Think of the Japanese expression of budrutsu or martial skill, martial technique, it's not about artistry. It's about taking someone in armor to the ground on a field and cutting a throat and not having that done to you. If you wish to develop skill and self protection methods, you must start and stay within that realm of reality. Being an artist is irrelevant to your survival. That's the first thing to understand. The second thing is tools. Absolutely, learn to shoot. Absolutely, get to know other men. Absolutely know who has the ability to call up others with similar mindset, similar mission, shared ideology. This too is how the world works. Now, as a segue into the Safe Streets project, one of the things we're doing on top of the uh, artificial intelligence and facial recognition and uh, social media account monitoring and identifying people like Clint on the bike lock attacker, uh, working with uh, 4chan on the uh, Weaponized artists, as they call them. We also do an enormous amount of lesson beneath the scenes. We talk to all of the various patriot groups. And as a neutral party, we're able to dialogue with them, to coordinate them, to increase their competence, their coherence, their capabilities on the ground without having to deal with the rivalry that's often present in any sort of high-tension environment. On November 4th, in Austin, Texas, when we were down there, we saw the results of that effort and that Larson work We had over 250 armed men on the ground, professional, well-behaved, competent, in communication, coordinated. That's a very real kind of power to leverage. And power is a continuum, personal power, military power, economic power, group power. These are things for men to be aware of. It's not just your bank account and your muscles.
0: I have to say, I admire you for being willing to put yourself out there. I watched the coverage when you were there on the front lines, and that is very commendable. Not a lot of people are doing that because there's risk. There's real risk involved. I I know that you also have provided with uh, Praetorian Swift ground dominance training. Can you talk about what that
1: involves? So the ground dominance training directly ties into that coordination and competence on the ground during street unrest. So what we do is we provide training, uh, physical training, mental training, uh, emotional training for men that are in street unrest situations. How do you form a line? How do you hold that line? How do you advance and take ground? If you're overwhelmed, how do you retreat in good order? How do you extract someone that's been pulled out from your team or from your group and is being beaten within the midst of these anarchists? These are skills that can be learned, and Mr. Swift is at Praetorian Swift on Twitter. He's my partner at Dark Ride Man. We do a lot of work together. His background is as a municipal SWAT team. Uh, conflict leader, or what I call it, um, civil conflict teams. Uh, He's also been a private military contractor with significant combat experience, and he's been a rendition interrogator. I won't go into more detail on that, but I think our listeners know what that means. And he's providing his expertise, and with ground dominance training, that comes directly into play. And combined with what I see, where things are going, the intelligence that the safe... Streets Project receives. We know who they're facing. We know who their leaders are. We know their tactics. We know their plans. We're able to access their training materials to be one step ahead.
0: Well, there's a very high degree of intelligence going on here. I didn't realize that it was at this level, but the, the other side is doing the same thing. So that's definitely... A potentially explosive situation. I think you and I agree on this point that you will hinted at it earlier that the modern world, we, we live in this interesting phase where we've been conditioned that if some violent act happens, the police are just minutes away. There's a blogger called Instapundit Glenn Reynolds, who has a saying, when seconds count, the police are minutes away. So one of the things that we have to stop doing is having this thought that there's somebody else that's going to come and save us. It's certainly good to have the police there. It's certainly good to have the government there. But we can't rely on those people. We have to defend ourselves, defend our families, defend our cultures, our communities, and and not necessarily put all of our stock in in somebody else coming
1: to help us. There is no one coming to save you. You and your power are the only things your loved ones can depend upon. That is the essential truth. And if you forget that, you are the one who will pay the price, and you may pay it with your loved ones. The government does not have any obligation to protect you. There's even a Supreme Court decision on this. Warren versus the United States. The police are not there to protect you. They are there to enforce the law. The reality is that the law at any moment is what the political leaders say it is. This also is how things have always been. Men may create laws. i talk about this uh, in my book, The Nine Laws. The ninth law is that there are no laws. Men may build temples to honor the law. Men may put up statues of leaders of the law. But when I come down to it, the farthest back room of the king is where the real decisions are made. Take a look at what happened in Washington, D.C. this past week violent rioters, Antifa, in Washington, D.C., during the inauguration, were simply let go. Charges were dismissed. Why? Because it was politically expedient? How else do you think things work? It is a legal system. It is not a justice system. Do not expect justice. Expect enforcement. This is not to crush your spirit. This is not to make you cynical. This is simply to help you understand how power works. There is always a Caesar waiting. And right now, we live in interesting times. The dark-eyed man knows that all times are always interesting. There is never a shortage of man willing to rise to that state of total power. There is never a shortage of men who seek it. You need to be aware of this. This does not take away from the beauty of the world. This does not take away from the joy of civil society, of communities and families and and investing in building your culture and your civilization. But you have to understand how transient and fragile it is.
0: One of the things that I've seen happen is a lot of the enforcement of political correctness takes place through economic sanctions and what i'm thinking is if somebody says something that's outside of whatever the norms are for political correctness they could lose their job to take you mentioned milo to take him he his his opinions are not really far right he's uh basic opinion is that if you're going to engage in identity politics for some groups then you have to allow it for all groups and it's not really a, a radical or extreme position but i recall that he had a book contract and that was rescinded and all sorts of things happened to him trying to marginalize him and and i just that just popped into my head as an example i'm not sure if he's the best example but but given given the fact that this economic threat hangs over people today, what would you recommend for men who are looking to, to become financially independent? What, what should they be looking at?
1: The first thing is understand where you are, what are your risks? What can you rely on? What problems are out there? What pain is there in the marketplace that you are positioned to solve? Explore those things explore a lot of things. The way to have a terrific idea, the way to have a brilliant idea, is to have a lot of ideas. You know, I talk with a lot of folks online. I talk with a lot of folks in person. Um, I'm constantly exploring new concepts. Could we do this? Could we do that? With this? How about that? And the vast majority of them end up being shit. That's just how it works, too. But once in a while, you find a diamond in the rough. And then you can run with it. See if it pans out. That entrepreneurial mindset is very important. Perhaps you're stuck within a a corporate structure. Be an entrepreneur. What opportunities are there for you to do the same within your organization? Well, Ivan, what about political correctness? I could get fired if I say the wrong thing. That's right. Do you think life is fair? It is not a cultural wrestling match. It is a cultural war. There are going to be casualties. Yes, you may be one of them. And this goes directly back to that anti-fragility. Diversify your portfolio. Diversify your assets. Diversify your options. Whether you're a pickup artist and you want to spin plates, as they put it, whether you're an investor and you keep your funds and your liquidity in different countries and different banks and in different commodities, you have to spread things out. Always be on the lookout.
0: You mentioned the Dark Triad Man. Perhaps for listeners, you could summarize what the Dark Triad Man is.
1: Certainly. So the Dark Triad of Personality is a confluence and collection of three distinct traits. The first is narcissism. The second is Machiavellianism. And the third is psychopathy. Now, these are traits that everybody has to an extent on the spectrum. Um, all three of those things have a negative connotation for most listeners and a very, uh, the more transient or shallow the appreciation of those traits is, uh, the more negative that tends to be. So, you hear a psychopath, oh, instantly they think clowned with knives in an alley looking to stab people. Or if you hear a narcissist, you think, oh, somebody who's so dangerous and so damaging must be just like Donald Trump. Or with a Machiavellian, you think, oh, someone who's constantly spinning plots and plans. And, uh, yes and no, those are silly extremes. But what is narcissism? It's belief in the self. Donald Trump a narcissist? Sure. Is he correct? Absolutely. Was Muhammad Ali wrong to say I am the greatest? No, he was correct. Henry VIII proclaimed himself the head of a new form of Christianity. Was he correct? If you wanted to defy Henry VIII, what happened to you? Take Machiavellianism. Everybody uses that to an extent. And maybe a good example is my own experience as a project manager in the financial world. I'll have teams of 30 people distributed around the world. I can't fire any of them, none of them report to me. It's a matrix organization. So when I had a project to achieve, I had to herd these people, I had to ensure that things got done. I have all the accountability. Because my employer, my client, the vendors, my business partners all expected me to make sure it happened, but I had no authority. So is it manipulation? You can call it that. Is it influence? Absolutely. So learning how to move things, how to engage things, take things apart, how to shepherd and shift and nudge the trajectory of things really helps you aim where things land. Uh, and psychopathy, ultimately, the medical definition of it is where empathy is optional. They've done MRI brain scans of true psychopaths where they show, what, uh, I guess you would call them normies, uh, pictures of hurt or sobbing or wounded people, and they measure the brain reaction in comparison to psychopaths. And there's a thing called emotional contagion where if you see someone crying, you feel their pain. It's involuntary for most people. A psychopath decides whether or not to feel it. Ultimately, what we're talking about is detachment. So these things are an expansion, an evolution of human power. Again, keep in mind, the sword cares not who it cuts. If you have these traits and they're not deliberately, unconsciously working to refine them, and refine your deployment of them. Will you cause damage? What happens when a person is careless with a firearm? Yes, it's very dangerous. But more importantly, these are normal human traits. You know, if you go back to the very beginning, of the human ability to manifest change and reality in the world, the three basic pillars are thought, word, and deed. What you say, what you feel, and what you do Thought, word, and deed become vision, planning, and competence as they condense down. The Dark tribe takes these further. This is a teachable and a learnable process. Sharpens them into a point. Psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism. And with those, he's able to leverage what I call the detonation of fate. To make things happen in the real world. This is what the Nine laws teaches, is that process, how you condense. Now, if you think of an an aperture, like a camera lens or a microscope, or even more simply, you take a hose and you squeeze it. What happens to the stream of water? It goes farther, sharper, tighter. How do you make things happen in the world? whether it's a business you want to start and grow, whether it's a relationship you want to solidify into our marriage, whether it's raising children, whether it's achieving political change with the masses. You have to condense, you have to focus things. And focus as a verb, not as a noun. How do you focus? We have to put them through the aperture. Well, what is the aperture, Ivan? The answer is that that aperture is you. You are made in the image of God. This is said not because God has hair and God has a nose and feet. It's because that is what God does. He makes things real. This is what the human being is designed to do. Learning how to consciously grasp and deploy that is your duty as a human being.
0: I... I... Can say that can I, say I, read, that your I read your book and the the nine laws, and I can say this is this is something you mentioned that this is a teachable process, and what I've found is going through your book that you provide a lot of exercises that somebody who can do and actually learn these things. but I should say this is not a quick fix. it's definitely a book that somebody needs to sit down with and work over a period of time. It actually, I think, becomes a lifetime process of, of honing these skills. And it's very much like a, a samurai or a knight. They would never stop practicing how to use their weapons. And you mentioned the Nine Laws that the, the goal of the Nine Laws, the goal of this book, the goal of your mentoring, is to create a weaponized individual. And that's definitely possible has uh, very strong moral views. Is it possible to implement this and still do it in a moral fashion?
1: Absolutely. The two most impactful compliments I received on the nine laws, I'll give you the second one first, was a leftist who looked through it and then said to one of my readers, this is so dangerous. That men should be imprisoned for reading it, even if they have committed no crime. The most powerful and most important to me statement about my work, The Nine Laws, was that it does not contradict scripture. And to me, that was an immense, a very profound reassurance. For what I've done and what I've built. The nine laws is not about faith. It is not about morality. It is not about ethics or values. Those are software that are installed under the human being. The nine laws is the operating system. This is how the dark world works. Now, I use the term the dark world a lot. I don't mean it's dark because it's horrible, but because it's terrible, painful atrocities happen. Not about that. It's dark because it ends. We live in an entropic universe. Whether you come from science or whether you come from scripture, they both say the same thing. This universe is temporary. It is condensing. It is dark. It will end. It is finite. Understanding how it works. What are the levers within this dark world? What is the reality of it? And the nine Laws provides a framework for you to understand it at that basal operating system level, what you do with it, is an entirely different question. That's where your software comes into play. A mechanic who fixes a car does not make moral decisions about whether he uses a a wrench or a pair of pliers. A surgeon who is fixing your heart is unconcerned about whether it's ethical to use black or white thread when he stitches you up. That's not relevant. Whether you desire things to be one way or another is not relevant to how things are. This is a very difficult lesson for people. This lesson is, in fact, the very source of human suffering. When you are able to see, when you are willing to observe and to accept how things work, you have an almost infinite potential to change it. And that's what the Nine Laws is about.
0: In your opinion, if somebody runs without that additional layer of software called morality, are they always going to win against the person who is, let's say, implementing the nine laws, but has that software, has boundaries?
1: That's a good question. The answer is no, because what it comes down to is is the basic competence the basic coherence of the person. Does morality provide an advantage? Absolutely. Does it also provide limitations? Certainly. of the crusaders of deus vault. That is a cry of morality, of belief. That's an expression of the software overlaid upon those men. But you can also take the example of conservatives today who have placed moral virtue over survival. And we all see the damage that they've done across the entire West. They've enabled the left to rise again. They've enabled invasion to happen. We have to balance it. You are not guaranteed victory. You are guaranteed death in this world. It doesn't make it any less beautiful. If anything, it enhances it. We've only got a little bit of time here. In our own lives... The span of years that we are given, we don't know how long they are. We do know that it's finite, just like this dark world is. It's up to the individual to decide who he cuts and what he cuts with the sword he has in his hand. The Nine Laws is about teaching swordsmanship of the heart, swordsmanship of the mind, swordsmanship of the body. And again, the sword cares not who it cuts.
0: I know, Ivan, that you implement your philosophy in your own life. And I know this because I've watched you from the very moment that you've started, from the moment you opened up Dark Triad Man and uh, joined Twitter a couple of years ago. I've watched your meteoric rise through the stratosphere. And the amount of readers who are reading Dark Triad Man, how you, you got a publishing contract, and just the number of Twitter followers, just you, you accumulated them extremely rapidly. And then I also see the feedback that your readers provide to you, and the sort of, I, don't, I wouldn't say devotion, but the, the dedication that the people who read your blog and read The Nine Laws see. So you definitely implement your philosophy. I know that you're not staying still, and I know that you have a great sense of urgency. What do you have coming up in the future?
1: Well, there are a few things coming. Uh, the first is the Immersion Forge in Las Vegas of Caesar's Palace in the middle of January, uh, where Praetorian Swift and I will be taking a very select group of men. We've limited the seating to nine. Uh, we have Two or three slots left as of this morning. Uh, Taking them through, how do you uncover? How do you identify? How do you adhere to your sacred purpose? What is your sacred purpose? How do you identify it? What kind of savagery do you have as a human being inherent to you that you apply to that? How do you burn your ships on the beach? You know, that expression comes from Hernán Cortáez the Spanish explorer who landed here in North America, or Central America, as it were. Most know the story. Okay, we're going inland. Burn our ships. Most people don't know the rest of the story. One of us lieutenants laughed at that. Cortez drew his sword and stabbed him through the chest. What's burning your ships? What does it take to adhere to your sacred purpose, so ferociously that the dark world itself shifts and accommodates and changes for it. Well, Ivan, aren't you forcing your will on things? No, that's what sacred purpose is all about, that direct connection to the divine. So that's what we'll be doing in January. We also have, uh, just as those alt-right, those alt-finance, alt-tech, alt-media, Victorian Swift and I are launching Alt Church in 2018. And uh, I can't go into too much detail yet because it's a bit of a surprise of a launch. Uh, folks are aware of it, but what we will be doing is providing weaponized materials for Dare's Vault. Just let that sink in a bit. What would Dare's look like if it began to march in the world of men and not just online? So that's a major thing we have going. Now, the other thing I've been asked, uh, somewhat unexpectedly over the last week, is to do appearances in the United Kingdom. Uh, It's kind of a funny thing. Ivan, They won't let you in, Ivan. They'll arrest you for hate speech. Well, since I hold a a United Kingdom passport as well, I I can't be prevented from going there. Uh, I think it would be fascinating to see what happens to my audience reach if, if they arrest me for hate speech. It might even be fun to link up with Tommy Robinson on that one. But certainly, Dark Triad Man will continue to grow. And then later in 2018, Castalia House will be publishing this, the successor volume to the Nine Laws called The Three Gates. Well, the Nine Laws is your operating system, how the dark world works, how the human being itself interacts with those levers of the dark world, survival, momentum, triumph. That's the theme of the Nine Laws. But the Three Gates is more about the man himself manhood, war, salvation. What is that process, that repetitive, linear engagement? How does man handle the burden of performance that men hold? How do men identify themselves as men? What is the salvation? When do we get rust from that burden of performance? The very painful questions from that, very painful. The three gates will address that, and the three gates will lead you through that. I am looking forward to all of
0: these endeavors. I'm very much looking forward to the new book. I'm also very much looking forward to the alt church. You mentioned Deus Vult, that was the cry of the Crusaders' first crusade, and it's something that's become a meme online of, of Deus Vult, of of taking things back. But up until now, it hasn't left that online world, and it's it's restricted to that world. So making that reality is going to be huge. Ivan reached the end of our time. It has been a pleasure... That's saying it very mildly. It's been a fantastic pleasure speaking with you and very informative, and I really, really appreciate
1: you coming on the podcast. Michael, the pleasure is mutual. It's been a privilege to appear here on the podcast, and I want to thank you for the very warm welcome and reception.
0: Is there any parting thoughts for the listeners that you want to leave us with?
1: Get ready for 2018. There will be a year like nothing you have ever seen.
0: That concludes our discussion with Ivan Throne, the Dark Triad Man. If you want to learn more about Ivan, I will include all of his details in the show notes on honoranddaring.com. Thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking with you again very, very soon.